0: the Ukrainian government were using forces or um, some fascist groups aligned with fascist groups in some of those areas, then I think that's where some of the left have, have campaigned, uh, not necessarily in favour of Putin, but against the, the usage of fascist groupings in, in, uh, against the population.
1: I'm Neil Max and this is Bristol Unpacked speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. The two big news stories dominating the last couple of weeks are, of course, the war in Ukraine and Pino Ferries, the sacking of 800 members of staff at the 11th Hour on social media we talked to the regional organiser for South Wales and West for the union that's representing them, the RMT, the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers. His name's Brendan Kelly. He's a local boy from Bristol. They are a union that's notoriously industrially militant and politically left-wing. And despite being one of the founding unions of the Labour Party in 1899, they disaffiliated in 2004 after a fight over the nationalisation of railways. And on Ukraine itself, there is some controversy, as their leader, Ed Dempsey, he's been accused of meeting a Putin separatist and himself being a Putin apologist. Brendan Kelly refutes that strongly, but has a position where, I guess, a traditional leftist position that criticises NATO's historical role, but also is critical of the Russian aggression. The RMT also came out strongly for Brexit. So, is their position on Ukraine correct? Is their position on Brexit correct? And unions, are they still relevant today? And how can they broaden their reach to a wider and younger demographic? How long have you been a member?
0: I joined, as it was then and then British Rail back in 1989.
1: And so you were a, a railway man? Is that what you'd be called?
0: Yeah, I worked on the train maintenance down the, the fruit market. We maintain the high-speed trains for
1: Great Western. And are you still physically doing any kind of railway work or is it just purely focused on the on the union stuff? No, no.
0: From 2008, I got elected. I left the railway officially and became employed by the union.
1: And would, would it be fair to say that the RMT is seen as quite a left-wing radical union compared to some of the unions these days?
0: Yeah, well we try to be. Uh that's that's our aim. Uh we are uh, I think politically on the left. Uh there's no doubt about that. Our constitution says we're seeking a socialistic type society. That's always been in our constitution. And I think particularly with the election of Bob Crow back in the late nineties, I think that was, Bob got elected. We've cemented our position really. With the demise of the National Union of Mine Workers. I think the RMT really filled that gap, playing a uh, vanguard role in the trade union movement, particularly
1: politically and on the left. And he's pretty notorious, Bob Crowe. I think it was the anniversary of his death, wasn't it, last week? Yeah. He was quite a notorious sort of character, and the tabloids hated him. It was a bit of a sort of caricature in, in the tabloids, but he was kind of well-known for living. He continued to live at his council house in Dagenham most of his life. There's a fantastic interview with Andrew Neil, where he tries to sort of nail him a bit and talking about... Kind of accusing him of being a bit of a sort of fat cat union leader and he lists all the the wages for public servants from you know nurses doctors teachers and and railway workers and it's like significantly more and and tries to pin him down but he comes back and says, well you know because our union fought for this stuff whereas others didn't so effectively."
0: But yeah, Bob lived a very humble life, really. I mean, he was uh, you know he had his holidays, but he uh, yeah, that
1: was it. That was the, that was a charge against him, wasn't it? Just sort of drinking pina coladas in Brazil and all this sort of stuff that he was kind of uh, you know living the high life. Was that just a bit of um, I don't know tabloid naughtiness, or is there any truth to that? No,
0: I, I think most people drink. If you go, if you can afford to go on holiday, you're going to drink a pina colada. Personally, <laughs> yeah, I'll stick to beer. But Bob made it got a good point. He said, "Well, these things." Why should it just be for the wealthy? Why should workers not have these things, you know? And a lot of our members uh, were earning, because we've managed to increase wages on a railway massively compared to, you know, because we fought the corner for workers. And uh, like my son, he's just passed out as a train driver. He's on more money than me,
1: you know? That's why he's keeping it in the family. But, you know,
0: effectively, it depends what job you're in. A lot of railway jobs are highly skilled technical jobs, and highly responsible jobs in terms of safety, so they they can pay quite uh, quite better, better and, wages. And, and do you think
1: that, that's yeah. partly why he was targeted? I mean, I think he was obviously a very charismatic bloke, uh, you know, and he was uncompromising in his approach. And and I think what's quite interesting, I was watching some uh, old stuff around when he died in 2014. Ken Livingstone said the interesting thing about Bob Crow was that he he sort of didn't like a lot of people around leadership positions in politics or in unions and stuff, he didn't really change his culture or change who he was and put on any airs and graces.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that's what made Bob quite popular, really. Um, You know, because Bob would mix his words around sometimes as well, wouldn't he? You know, he wasn't, even though he, he, he was a passionate guy you know he was generally very passionate about things you know because I, I knew him quite well obviously and we worked quite close together here yeah. for, for many years part of the campaign had got him elected you know you're right I mean he's pretty down the earth, or any bloke and he didn't change you know he, he could go into any mess room in the country really for r- railway workers and uh, was really well received he was really looked up to by workers you know
1: and fighting too for now for 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 working terms and conditions for railway or well, transport workers in general and pay. Yeah. It was, it was... How was he able to do that more effectively? Because obviously other public servants, their wages haven't increased in the same way. It was—is it just by being, you know, bombastic and and demanding more?
0: Yeah, well, I think we're um, we do demand more, you know, and we don't accept no for an answer from employers and we've got a probably a history um a recent history at least of uh, being prepared to take action when and where we have to for our members you know we we, we haven't ever disguised the fact we're a militant trade union we're yep. politically militant and we're industrially militant and that's our strategy
1: i'll talk a bit more about the the, the political militancy a, a bit later i want to part of that just for a minute and just talk about specifically Bristol and a broader context around the railways. You just protested outside Temple Meads on Wednesday, the 9th of March. So there is current um, industrial action uh, on the Great Western Railways. Do you want to t- tell us a bit about that? Uh,
0: it's not technically industrial action. Uh, I think there was a media report that came out about that. But, but actually, was it? <laughs> it, it, it was a protest. There was different stations around the country, and a protest was just to highlight to passengers... What was happening on the railway really, and the fact that fare increases had just been announced, um, and we were counterposing the fact that fares are going up at the same yeah. time as services and staff are they're in line to be cut because they are looking at that at the current moment in the railway network um, outside of Wales. Wales, I tend to spend a lot of time in Wales, and they mm. we've got a different position there. But I think in England um, we're facing quite serious attacks on jobs. Terms, and conditions, and uh, and rail services as well. So that was what, a very why is happy. that why is
1: the difference? What is the difference with, between the, the two countries?
0: Well, in, in Wales, you've got devolved uh, Welsh government. Yeah, it's to do is, with, uh, with Mark. Yeah, Mark Drafer is a labor Richmond, I yeah. deal with Mark and his colleagues quite a bit in different discussions for different things, and it, mm. we've managed to um, improve terms and conditions. Actually, even through the the, the last period. In Wales, and we've had jobs protected. We've got a local compulsory redundancy agreement for the, for the length of the current arrangements, which is about fifteen years long. So, we've we've got a much different um, working arrangements, much better protections, much better improved paying conditions in Wales, um, and that's because we've got a dialogue and a, and a working
1: arrangements with Transport for Wales and Welsh government. And and it's a, a far more tricky uh, situation. In England?
0: Well, in England, the Tory government are trying to make working class people pay the price of the pandemic and the uh, the cost of living crisis, aren't they? I mean, that's effectively what the Tory philosophy is, you know, is to protect their protect their friends, the millionaires, their class. And I've uh, pushed the cost of the crisis onto working class people uh, and they see trade unions as an obstacle to achieving that.
1: Is, is that still how they see, obviously, with the, the kind of history of uh, trade unions in, in this country, um, if we go back to 1979, yeah, I think there was about 13, 14 million people were members of trade unions. And now it's sort of half, around six, six and a half million today. And obviously, Margaret Thatcher played a strong role, didn't she, in trying to you know, wrestle control back from unions and was very critical the whole kind of three-day week and how, in, in her mind, unions sort of held the country to ransom a bit. Now we sort of fast forward to to, to, to today. Do you think this present Conservative government see unions in the same way as Thatcher did, as a, as a, as a sort of, you know, a, a pain in the arse, um, for of a better way of putting it, that actually are just getting in the way of progress?
0: Yeah, I think they do. I think they do see uh, trade unions as being an obstacle, you know, the particularly civil service unions, um, public sector type workers, similar to railway workers, I think they definitely see that as being uh, a a barrier. I mean, sometimes, if I'm honest, trade unions aren't strong enough. You know, the TUC hasn't really been strong enough over many years, um, including uh, some of the leading trade unions, you know, I, I don't think are strong enough, you know, and that's why, they sold
1: out a bit. Some of the other big trade unions sold out a bit. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, well,
0: you know, they've just they've just negated their position really. I mean, have, some of these unions are very big, very powerful, got a lot of resources, mm. but they don't seem to spend time fighting tooth and nail, which is what they should be doing, to get um, you know, workers' voice heard and also improvement on our terms and conditions. I mean, it's, it's a welcome change at Unite. Now, Sharon Graham seems to be taking Unite in a very similar position. So I think, I think she's look, looked at the RMT and seen what we've done um, and realised if you don't stand up and fight, you know, then they'll walk all over you, and this government particularly, you know.
1: And on railways um, specifically, um, the position of the RMT is, is supporting the full nationalisation of the railways and other public transport, is that right?
0: Well, it is, yeah. I mean, effectively, in real terms, it's been nationalised. Well, Network Rail's been renationalised anyway through the, through the back door, hadn't it, as we know. So, because uh, they effectively took it over. The, the train operating companies, really, have been a basket case for the last two years. And they've, towards their own admission, they put about £14 billion pounds in, really, to prop up these private companies, you know. Well, it's
1: um, yeah, public subsidies um, to private companies. But this, this is an interesting concept about the whole public sort of privatisation stuff, because it's not as if it's left to the market, is it, that the, the state have had to intervene and, and subsidise private companies?
0: Well, they always have done. I mean, in fact, they've, uh, I think in, in, in the early days of privatisation, the the subsidy to the industry went up by four times, you know, than it was in the British Rail. British Rail was starved of cash, you know, most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't have a thriving, successful economy without a thriving, a successful um, and modern uh transport system rail transport system that's
1: and it's quite popular now isn't it that that what, what maybe some people i don't know you know 15 or maybe 15 20 years ago not even that would see renationalization as uh you know quite a kind of radical left-wing yeah. thing when we were in the mists of everything being privatized but i think there was on there was a a survey done something like 65 percent of the public do you want the railways to be back in public ownership. So it's quite a popular yeah. policy and obviously something that Corbyn was, was running with a little bit. Um, it, It's as this sort of overton window shifted a bit now, then do you think that because people are so cheesed off with, with, you know, kind of what they've got to pay, I think it's a 20, 25% increase on uh, in fares since it's been privatized or something ridiculous like that, that people now do feel that it needs to go back into public hands.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be, uh, it needs to be in public hands. They need to end the franchising system. You know, uh, I, I think they're talk- they are moving towards a more of a management contract situation. But still, they're keeping a the private sector involved. And the private sector don't bring anything. They don't bring anything. But interestingly, when East Coast was took back under national ownership, because three times the private National Express and a couple of others tried to run it and then ran it into the ground, but when they took it back under public ownership, it was making £350 million a year. And then yeah. they decided to primatise it again. You just think, well, it's absurd.
1: <laughs> and it's not a particularly sort of radical position anymore. Do you think this is actually something that is achievable, but will probably need to change a government to be so? Or yeah, do, I think do, so. I mean, not-
0: it's looking that way. I mean, they've almost, they've almost for the last two years been nationalised by default because effectively they would have uh, just pulled out Uh, unless the government was bailing them out. In Wales, they took a different approach. So on the 7th of February last year, Kyrgyz Amy, who had taken on the, it wasn't a franchise, it was a grant agreement in 2018, basically because the Welsh government had to do that. So they had to put it out to tender and Kyrgyz Amy won the contract. But when Kyrgyz Amy needed bailing out 2020, the decision was taken that Welsh government wouldn't bail them out, but they would take the keys back, which is what they did. Now it's run by Transport
1: for Wales. One of the Labour MPs I had on the show previously, local Labour MP Kerry Smith, saying that, that actually it doesn't really matter how services are done at the point of need, it, it, as long as somebody kind of receives good service, it doesn't really matter to them whether it's state owned or not. And I and, and I guess I guess that's the kind of that's the argument for the, for this stuff. But at the well, same that's, time. that's
0: only because you know, some of the the issues aren't visible to people and no, then no, you're no, honest no. yeah people on on a user basis they'll say well as long as they get the service i want when i want it at the price i want i'm fine yeah. you know what they don't realize is that it could be massively improved if the resources instead of going into shareholders pockets was going into uh, to reinvest it in the industry but that's not visible to people, you know, unless they read about it or get told it. And that's, that's why we have to go outside stations and give leaflets out <laughs> to tell people exactly what's happening, you know, and where their money's
1: going. How can we attract more yeah. young people into joining unions than Brendan? Because I think, obviously, there is a there is a tradition, you know, certain jobs, people kind of join in unions, but it feels to me that there's a bit of a generational divide, certainly with some of the old, bigger unions, yeah. would that be fair?
0: Yeah, that's very fair. I think it's uh, young people are obviously uh, sometimes the most exploited section of the workforce, you know, and like you say, probably one of the, the least unionised. And it is difficult because, you know, for one, I don't think young, young workers, it's not because young workers don't want to be in a trade union. I joined a trade union when I was uh, uh, 16. You know, yeah. It was an expected thing. I went into engineering, but that was a
1: normal thing back then, wasn't it? That was uh, yeah. yeah
0: it when I just Star Wars, 1977. So yeah, it was Basically, still yeah. um, it was still the expected thing, you know, and and people probably took it for granted a bit. Didn't really think it was going to be challenged, you know. And now, like you said, we've uh, t- t- because of the Tories and and the, and the lack of will from the last Labour administration, which we have for 13 years. And didn't really do a hell of a lot for trade unions in many respects, particularly in terms of anti union legislation. We've we've struggled, and I think for young people, it's you know they 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 need to be in trade unions, but trade unions have to get out there and organise them, you know, and show them the relevance of trade unions and how they won't be picked off as individually if they, if they organise together and they can be stronger together. You know?
1: And obviously the economy's changed, hasn't it? That there isn't the yeah. same amount of, you know, blue collar work that there used to be. Um, but certainly what is happening now, increasingly so, I think there's a lot more low paid um, jobs without job security, this sort yeah. of gig economy kind of stuff. How how can we start to get people that are involved in, I guess, I mean, Uber drivers have been out campaigning, aren't they? You know, that there is seem to be, whilst whilst there aren't so many young people maybe joining traditional unions there does seem to be an upsurge in i guess political activism a, a, a bit more from that younger sort of uh, under 30s generation
0: yeah i think so uh, and that's good you know i've uh joined a bit of that myself really as a trade unionist, and spoke at a couple of events you know said to climate campaigners and uh yeah. And other campaigners against laws of restricting protests and things like this. You know, we've had in Bristol. and Bristol's been a bit of a hub for that, and it? it
1: has. Yeah, we
0: joined those protests, and I've spoken to young people as well. And sometimes they're a bit suspicious of trade unions, you know, which is an interesting right. thing, really, because obviously we're we're there for working people. But sometimes I think young people think that trade unions may hold them back. I think the worry is from sometimes from these new uh, younger movements is they fear if the trade unions are involved. They're trying and dominate to dominate and control it, it a, you yeah. know, and yeah. stop it. And I think that they got a point. <laughs> and we've got to make yeah. sure the trade unions don't do that, you know. Um, I think progressive unions like ours would never want to do that. But we have to make sure that youth have their voice. And politically, <laughs> as a socialist, that's what I believe as well. And the youth organization and the Labour Party, unfortunately, it seems to be on the verge of being closed down by Starmer, you know.
1: Yeah, let's touch on that. Your trade union did back uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour. And you've been on record now criticising the sort of Labour's purge of the left. H- how do you see this developing now uh, with with the Labour Party? Obviously, you know, change of leadership from Corbyn to Starmer. Some people see that as being, you know, we now have somebody that's a bit more electable, uh, you know, and, and we could get a government. And obviously, we had the worst general election since the 1930s, losing seats in the Red Wall that... Uh, presumably you see this as a bad thing with Starman now, but how can you, I guess my question is, how can you balance meeting the needs of, of working people and having a, a you know a, an element of socialism, but also being elected?
0: Yeah, that's always been a dilemma. It? I think uh, ultimately, f- from my perspective, I mean, uh, I supported Corbyn's elections all the way through and supported him staying as the leader, really. Um, yeah. I, th- I think... Pierre Starmer and the right of the party lost election for us in 2019. I don't think Corbyn lost that
1: election. Okay, expand on that. Why? Well, I, I
0: think he, I think pushing us down a road of committing to um, undo or seek to undo the referendum ballot 2016, you know, the European
1: uh, Union yeah, referendum. and the rmt were pro-brexit uh pro-Brexit. yeah the
0: way they call it lexit i think it's a left-wing
1: yeah, left you, you distanced yourself from yeah. sort of farage and aaron banks and the kind of Tory ukip campaign and and but you, yeah lexit is uh for, some people may not know the difference what, what is the fundamental difference it's kind of brexit without the racism yeah
0: yeah, I think what he was saying, I mean, it's, a, it's similar to the old Tony Ben position, wasn't it? it was that yeah. Europe is an undemocratic institution. It, it's there to protect, it's a, it's, it's a boss's club, effectively. It's a, to protect the interests of capital within Europe against other capital groups such as the United States and uh, Japan and what have you in China. But ultimately, it's not in there in the interest of working class people, you know, and doesn't resolve issues for us. There has been positive aspects of Europe, possibly the health and safety legislation, social um, welfare legislation, human rights legislation. And so, it's, yeah, human rights. It, there has been positive elements to that, but ultimately, you could do that. You could do those things for your own constitution anyway, if you wish to in UK government. But I mean, my own political views as a socialist was that actually it probably doesn't in the longer term, whether you're in a Europe or out of Europe, ultimately it's capitalism is a problem, you know. So. Yeah coming out of Europe, doesn't solve problems for working-class people.
1: Well, how is the Labour Party going to galvanise? If it looks right, Is it, it's going to lose all that groundswell of support, surely. Well, I
0: think Steinberg will get elected. I, I've got a feeling, because so, he'll have the establishment behind him. The, the, yeah. the purpose of, the, of getting Starmer for the establishment was that they want a safe alternative, because they know the Tories will run out of steam. Politically, yeah. they're at the end of their... Time, I suspect, in the next couple of years, and they want a safe alternative. And that will always be um, they need a Labour Party, who they probably know will be the, the alternative to be safe as far as the establishment's concerned, you know, and the wealthy class. They're not going to challenge, and that's what you'll get, you know, unfortunately. But that won't solve the issues for young people. Young people, and so there's going to be mass rises in not just this country, but across the world. Because people have are been pushed close to that age now, and I think there's, uh, and in some ways, I think young people will probably lead the way. You know, Cause yeah, let's touch on you know, that international.
1: Successful. Let's touch on that international picture because that is something that the RMT, um, yeah. unlike all you know, unlike um, it's slightly different than some other unions. It does have, and and it's very you know open and honest and almost robust debate. This sense of international brotherhood, uh, international sisterhood, it, it, international socialism. Of, of working people uh, across the kind of globe we've seen haven't we in the last probably decade more working people actually looking in the in the direction of right wing populism do you see that as a ultimately a bad thing or do you see that as actually sort of potentially the start of a process where people are beginning to question institutions and might be looking back in the wrong horse now, but in time will come, you know, to to a, a position when they will vote for people in parties that represent their needs?
0: Well, I, I think historically you could always look at the rise of, of either fascism or right-wing movements as mm-hmm. being as a consequence of the failures of the Labour movement particularly, but perhaps the Labour union movement to give a lead in difficult times you know and if people don't get their answers solutions from the socialist left they unfortunately some sections will move in desperation to any alternative views which seem to have uh, or present at least some answers you know even though they're not answers and that's the danger for the labour and trade union movement if they don't give leadership that's where people could end up particularly younger people you know like you said it's uh it's, it's, it's sad to I mean, see this has been happening,
1: hasn't it? This has been happening not just here, you know, in, in no. the States, in, you know, large swathes of Europe, um, you know, Brazil, where, where I've got kind of family, that this is this is a, you know, the, the sort of rise of the strongman kind of populist leaders. And I think that, um, as you say, that's usually when there's a certain economic conditions and situations. So yeah. I just wonder whether it's kind of in an odd way, it's, it's a process that could be positive yeah. at the end of it. Um, because people no longer trust the 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 the, the, the order um, and the establishment.
0: I can't. No, I can't see there's any uh, posturing around it. Really, I mean, people, young people, particularly, challenging the establishment, challenging the order of things, is is a healthy thing, really. But once that goes in a populist way, right wing movements, right, there's huge yeah. dangers and mm-hmm. damage that can be caused to those people. You know.
1: So it's just fascism. It's just fascism. Is it fair to say then that the left is losing the battle or has been losing the battle to the right with working class and certainly in this country?
0: Well, in some respects they, they have, you know, because ultimately we've taken a step back now because of the Corbyn situation and the fact that that was yeah. un, undermined and defeated. You have to, we have to recognise that.
1: Just jump in, if I may, and tell you a bit about the cable. 3,000 members... We have now each month chipping in to support the media Bristol needs and deserves. So if you want to get under the skin and behind the headlines, then please do chuck in anything from a quid a month and become a co-owner of Bristol's 100% community-owned newspaper. Back to the chat. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is big news at the moment. It's kind of relevant a little bit to to the RMT in the sense that your Assistant General Secretary, Eddie Dempsey, has been in the press being criticised as being pro-Putin. He had visited some of the Russian separatist disputed areas in Donbass, I think, in Ukraine. Just a quick bit of clarification here. Eddie Dempsey, elected Assistant General Secretary of RMT in 2021, made a visit to the separatist militias in Ukraine's Donbass region in 2015. The militias style themselves as anti-fascists, but are backed by Putin's regime and have been accused of brutality. Since 2014, they have been at war with the official Ukrainian government forces and others like the Azov Battalion, the prominent Ukrainian neo-Nazi militia. Dempsey's visit resurfaced recently and the RMT were the subject of renewed controversy, including from within Labour and in the press. In early March, an article in The Telegraph said that the RMT have long-standing sympathies for pro-Putin separatists. Separately, the Telegraph have since removed from its website all traces of years of content published under a multi-million pound deal with the Russian government's official newspaper. Is that something that's been on your radar? People have been talking about that in the RMT?
0: Yeah, I I know Eddie. He's a a personal friend, actually, Eddie. Um, And he's... uh, and he's a good bloke. He speaks his mind. He's a very intelligent um, individual, actually. I was with him yesterday, Funny enough, uh, at England, okay. All right. our yeah. engineering conference in Cardiff. But hes I don't think that was his position, and I don't think that's his position now. It's, not, it's, it's probably not for me to yeah. answer completely for him, but I don't believe he's a supporter of Putin, and I don't think he's a supporter of the Russian invasion. I think what he will argue is that there's a prehistory to the current invasion, um, yeah. And the, the media in the West are deliberately ignoring that. Um, I know he did do a visit, and I think there was pictures in the media about that as well. But he, I think what what that was is that he was Eddie's been always been a passionate anti-fascist, um, an activist in in the anti-fascist movement, you know, to stop yeah. the fascists in the UK. And I think he's he was supportive of groups that were fighting against fascist groups.
1: Against like the Azov military sort of sections in the Donbass, yeah?
0: Yeah, I'm not an expert in this, sir, but my understanding yeah. is there was fascist groupings, I think it's C-13 or something, there's maybe others as well, right. yeah. Yeah. who have had some legitimacy inside the Ukrainian establishment and, that, and have been used, really, in this war which has gone on now for eight years, apparently, prior to the Russian invasion, uh, where 14,000 people have died. I suspect that's on both sides, you know, um, the
1: Ukrainian... Um, so he, he would push back against the charge of being a Putin apologist? Oh, I,
0: I think 100% he would do. Um, I'd be you know, Putin is not... Eddie's uh, on the left. I think he's probably more sympathised with, with the Communist Party in the past historically. He may not even be a member of that, so it may not be fair to say that. Yeah. But, it, but you know, it's not the Soviet Union anymore. It's, uh, it's a gangster capitalist state, you know, run by Putin. And uh, who would... Want You've to said that much?
1: yourself, actually. I was going to say that. You've said that yourself, haven't you, yeah. on your own um, Facebook. And that's what I think is quite interesting, is there There does seem to be, you know, it's a small subsection, but there does seem to be some sections of the left that are kind of being a little bit uh, sort of whataboutery. Yeah, but, you know, NATO did this and that. And, and, and it's this sense of finding it really, really difficult to kind of get behind... Um, you know, get behind any kind of Western intervention, even this. When, well, when effectively, what what you are sort of propagating or, or protecting in your own words is gangster capitalism, not not old style communism.
0: No, no. But if the first casualty in war is truth, as they say, isn't it? You know, and, and the danger is. There's, I mean, there's propaganda on both sides. You know, you've got two imperialist blocs, really, which are Putin and the yeah. East, and you've got uh, NATO, which has clearly um, set its path out in recent decades to try and push, push the boundary back on, on uh, Eastern Europe and Russia. It's, it's created a lot of... Have they pushed the
1: boundary back, though, or, or have these sovereign countries just decided that they want to join NATO? Or they, or they want to join the European Union because no, yeah, one's, putting gun to, no one's putting a gun to their head, are they? Uh,
0: well, no, they're putting a, putting a gun on their uh, on their borders. I think which is part of the problem. And I think NATO would realise and understand that at some stage that was going to cause a reaction. I think um, to I mean to, to be fair, Russian troops were on the border for some time without invading. At that stage, if they had invited Ukraine to become a part of NATO. What
1: would they have done? If why didn't it, they? I mean,
0: why didn't they join Ukraine up on the eve of invasion? Why didn't they? And why don't they now? You
1: know, I mean, uh, what, what, why don't the um, why don't the allies or the, or the West protect Ukraine now? Because yeah, not, I, I'm not
0: calling you know. for that. I'm just because of the NATO of to point out, because I think actually a, a, a war would be devastating. I think they know that. Well, that's, well.
1: What, that's kind of what Zelensky saying, isn't it? Does it? At the end of the day, this is in Europe. Does it matter? I'm just going to read out your quote. So solidarity with the Ukrainian people fighting for their lives, the right to self-determination against Putin's gangster capitalism. Neither Putin or NATO must be allowed to use this country or its people as a pawn in their military and economic game of thrones. Only a socialist Ukraine can give working class people freedom from imperialism from the East or West that 's obviously an ideal, but when the bombs are coming you know and they 're coming from Russia, is it not a normal natural position and dare I even say that actually it 's pushed them even closer into the hands of NATO than ever hasn 't it
0: what the invasion
1: yeah yeah yeah,
0: there probably has yeah i mean I'm, like i said i 'm no defender of the invasion of uh, by Russia, and I mean that—that that needs to be con- rightly condemned, you know. And every yeah. nation, Ukrainian nation, does have a right to self-determination. So, if you demand that countries have a right to self-determination, they have a right to yeah. determine those things, you know. But the problem is, NATO would have been aware of the, the the risky world that they were creating by doing that, you know. Do
1: you think they were poking the bear because obviously encroaching slowly in a bit more? And as you said about having. Uh, you know, nuclear warheads not far, you know, away in those close NATO countries, having agreed not to, not to, um, you know, the original agreements, not to advance as far as they did. Um, do you think that they kind of put Putin in a situation that they kind of knew this would rile him a bit?
0: Well, I think I think most observers have probably said that at some stage they Putin was going to respond, you know, to to any provocation. I think Ukraine was probably a step too far. For for Russian interests, you know, because Ukraine obviously was an integral part economically as well as part of the uh, Soviet Union, wasn't it? You know, so I imagine a loss of that. They they lost a lot of their industrial capacity when they lost Ukraine. Um, I'm not quite convinced that you that Putin wants to maintain the whole of Ukraine. I, I wouldn't be too surprised that at some stage he pulls back and tries to keep the Russian speaking areas, but. The rest of Ukraine, then he would probably settle for a deal that says a non-military zone. You know, so you don't um,
1: buy into the argument that next it's going to be Finland, then it's going to be Poland. People in Poland need to be. I don't think he's got Europe resources. Or Estonia, Latvia, that, that actually, because I think some of the um, some of the arguments are that he's kind of using this sort of NATO thing really to hide behind what what he's always wanted, which is a uh, to push back against you know the the new boundaries and not even necessary for, for reclaiming re back soviet countries but kind of this sense of him being a kind of a czar and wanting that russian empire returned you think that's a bit of hyperbole
0: yeah well i think so yeah i think there's a lot of uh you know just have said the first casualty was truth in it you know the west media and everything else have gone uh, ballistic haven't they on on that and sort of uh you know, they, they seem to forget uh, he was invited over by Blair, wasn't he, in the early 2002, I think it was, wasn't it? Even after Chechen, you know, the massacres that took place there, you know, the establishment here welcomed him, Putin then, because they seen him as an alternative. Exactly the same with Saddam Hussein, you know, they seen him as an alternative. They, he was supported and finance, wasn't he, by the United States and, and other Western countries, you know? Um, but as soon as they don't have a use of them anymore... They uh, they they try and find ways to have wars against them. So, no, you know, working class people in Russia, in Ukraine, and also in the West are going to lose out by this. Um, and so, we've got no interest in that war. Um, and yeah, you know, but we, what
1: you do you do? I, I understand that, but what do you do when you know you're literally in that situation? Where because obviously he has taken, you know, previously Crimea. He's 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 taken uh, Belarus. He's or in his head retaken, taken back, uh, you know, parts of that of that Donbass region. We've seen what's happened in Georgia, you just said about in Chechnya. Um you know, he's got form on this. Um, and and I think you are right that this seems to be the first time that actually there's a galvanization against that. And I think that it's probably surprised Putin how united the West has been because I think he probably expected them to just do the same thing as they've been doing before, which was sort of slightly turn a blind eye to it.
0: Yeah, Yeah, you could be right with that. Um And, you know, these situations aren't always um, exactly the same as they were previously, you know. Times change, you know, you don't know really where... The situation is going. I think ultimately, anything that can bring the war to to an end, uh, yeah. an invasion to an end quickly, is a good thing. I think the, dealing with Putin is the is the role of the Russian people. They've got to deal with him. You know.
1: Do you see the broader political, geopolitical sense with this stuff? That the the, the, the um, we spoke earlier about Brexit. You know, there's the whole thing around kind of Trump. The, the one thing that sort of united, well, didn't really unite, but it was kind of temporary uh, partners in the same mission, Brexit, that you had obviously people on the right, but then you had the sort of Lexit people on the left. Do you, do you wonder if actually that there was more, you know, Russian collusion or Russian um, infiltration into clearly into our, um, you know, in, into... Uh, our our country we're seeing that now with the kind of the, the purging of the, of the oligarchs and actually i just wondered whether there are some people on the lexit side and also some people on the brexit side that are now thinking bloody hell i didn't realize that actually you know w- we're now seeing what putin's all about and and this isn't really what i thought this was and maybe they feel like sort of that they were sort of useful idiots a bit
0: maybe i don't know i think it's it, things are a bit confused you know there's no doubt about it. i think is it's difficult times really because trying to understand the nature of these things is is complex and obviously you know the best people <laughs> theoreticians are trying to muddle over what what's the right thing what's the wrong thing you know And i think um from a socialist point of view i, I think anything that's you know, socialists historically have uh, not sided either with capitalism
1: abroad or capitalism at home. You know, um, yeah. and taking an opposition perspective to to, to to sort of both. If you if you had to, would you if you were forced to choose one or the other, would you choose uh, Putin or NATO?
0: Well, I don't think that is a choice. I don't think there really could ever be. You know, it's it's a okay. it's not a choice. I don't think that's a.
1: If you were in Ukraine though now and there were bombs over your head, that that is a straight choice though, isn't it, for the Ukrainian people? Well,
0: well not really, because they don't have to join NATO. In fact, NATO didn't let them in, um, so that's not a choice for them. I think the the issue is about whether they accept
1: the Russian invasion. Well, okay, looking to looking to the West or looking to the East, then I, I guess Western institutions like you know, like they want to be in the EU or kind of you know.
0: Well, I, I'm not convinced that working class people will get will get the end decision of that anyway, unless they take things into their own hands now.
1: And they, so it will be the leaders of those countries that will dis- obviously will decide yeah, that. And I, and I think of, they anyway. do
0: so, so for all sorts of different reasons, don't they? You know, um, it, it's about it's about and pence at the end of the day, isn't it? Military, so is this really military an argument? tanks then? really is about securing your pound, shillings and pence, isn't it? And stopping yeah. somebody else having it. And I think got a
1: small amount of people deciding this stuff again. Once again, wars are an argument between a small amount of people, aren't they? Usually.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the the invasion needs to be repelled, you know. Um, yeah. de- demands need to be put on Putin to, to withdraw his forces, you know, and allow Ukraine to have self-determination, you know. But it needs to be democracy in Ukraine and, you know, the working class movement needs to be um, energised and put in a big part of that as well.
1: There also does feel a bit... Um, I don't know if you probably would would relate to this. There's a little bit of McCarthyism in the air a bit at the moment. Anybody that says anything that's not on the kind of, you know, on the pro-pro line of of um, of the West is being othered a bit. Are you feeling that and seeing that yeah, I, I on think social it's, media? There's
0: it a split, really, because some of the stuff that's gone wrong is stuff that we can all buy into, you know, which is helping Ukrainian people who were fleeing um, that situation, you know. Then yep. we should be demanding as much resources and help as we could possibly give them. Yep. There's also the, the supporting the Ukrainian people standing up against uh, an invasion of their country, and you've got to say that that's we support the people and fighting back against that. There is a problem, though, is that and it can't be ignored that the war that was taking place for eight years with fourteen thousand deaths was was a result of. A huge amount of bombings being carried out by the ukrainian government against um but
1: he had annexed you're right but he had annexed parts of a sovereign country so it's like france taking cornwall and devon as france and then us yeah f- firing at france isn't it so i think the way that's painted it almost as if like you know donbass has been like an innocent region that's just been bombed by the ukrainian government there's clearly been a there's obviously been a you know no, no they, uh, they
0: didn't just launch the war on their group. own uh, people. I think it, ultimately there were tensions have been there, um, so it's not a question of saints and sinners, you know, But but sure. recognising yeah, sure. that yeah. this is this is not just a new situation, you know, and it's been developing, um, yeah. and and yeah. NATO have had their hands in that as well, you know, as well as uh, Putin on, on the east and supporting Russian speaking populations in there, but you can deny, I mean, you have to say, it's the tr- if that's the truth, it's the truth. If the Ukrainian government were using forces or um, and some fascist groups uh, aligned with fascist groups in some of those areas, then I think that's where some of the left have, have campaigned, uh, not necessarily in favour of Putin, but against the, the usage of fascist groupings in, in uh, against the population. You know, although it is a tiny
1: percentage because I've I've heard that argument been put around you know uh, as we said before as and other things it's you know it's it's like there's there's a far bigger voting population for the Le Front National in, in, in France but we don't say France is a fascist country do we do you know what I mean it's kind of this thing is done a little bit of rounds on the left that Ukrainians are all fascist when it's like something like you know it's under yeah, like no,
0: no, I, I, I mean I wouldn't characterize Ukraine as a fascist yeah. country uh, I wouldn't yeah, say some that.
1: people kind of are a bit there in that you know well, it's being I guess it's being over hyped a bit this and it sort of plays into this whole Putin sort of his in his own words the denazification line a bit this is i guess that's where there's that there's that real dilemma between yeah. not wanting to shut down debate and as you say ro being honest and not falling into mccarthyism but also not kind of doing russia propaganda for them yeah but we can't allow other
0: people to to dictate how our debate in the movements you know i mean these yeah. terminologies can be picked up by you know by the west and the east really in terms of fascism you know and like sure. you said, Putin's it, it, it lends it that 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 particular accusation against sections of the Ukrainian forces um, yeah. is is a convenient thing for Putin to hang his coat on, isn't it? To try and get popular support back for what he's uh, he's saying is against a fascist. But, but the Ukrainian government is not fascist. The Ukrainian state is not a fascist state. And I think, well, what they have done is they've unleashed or been prepared to at least on. To, and I'm not an expert and I don't know all the details, but my understanding is, the accusation is, that they, uh, they've they um, allowed some of these fascist groups to become embedded
1: within the state forces. I'd, I'd watched, watched a brilliant YouTube video of one of Bob Crow's speeches around, because I know he's from Dagenham, would not he, where the, the British National Party and National Front gained a real foothold, um, and then the left Labour campaign has kind of pulled that back, talking about working-class solidarity and being fiercely and robustly anti-fascist and, and and challenge that in any way, shape, and form. And I think that that kind of message, I don't hear that so much in working-class movements these days. Uh,
0: um, yeah, I think it. I, I, that, that has fed itself into the Trade Unions a bit, amongst our membership, you know. it's not it really?
1: Okay.
0: Unfortunately, yeah, because they're prone to the same pressures, you know, I mean, the, the Black Lives yeah. Matter movement, you know, I ended up in sort of so many debates on life about, about that, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. and my enthusiasm for it, you know, was people took umbrage with, you know, um, some of yeah. our members did, you know, and, but yeah. Um, yeah. people seen it, oh, trying to give black people a better position than white people, no, it's not, yeah. you know, They're trying, trying to get th- cut through that against the avalanche of, um, abuse and misinformation that's coming from the establishment about it all you
1: know I just want to change tact a little bit and we'll wrap up now sure. Brendan because we're getting on a bit but I just want to talk a little bit because obviously it's really topical it's happened the last couple of days P&O ferries um, sacking all their staff you know completely out the blue 1,100 staff um, and it's a complicated situation the RMT are quite heavily involved in this as uh, one of the unions representing the workers well, it's
0: mainly RMT members who are affected by it. I think some Nautilus members may be affected.
1: Yeah, there's two unions. The RMT is predominantly represents the vast majority of the workers, yeah?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think, uh, so I think that's, yeah, it's sh- shocking really what's happening. Um, I mean, we put some demands out uh, trying to get the government to intervene, um, Do you really want to mean, just
1: say what's happened? Because some people may not know. Obviously, I know it's been in the news. So, so yeah. no, they, they, how many jobs have gone, and, uh, and and how this came about?
0: Yeah, well, well it came out but as a bolt from the blue, really. I mean, we've always had known these uh, seafaring companies had the capacity because of the rules they operate under to uh, to act in quite a um, uh, vicious way, really, against their workforce. And it is a difficult area to organise in. We've always been under threat of um, uh, flagging out into them taking on workers from other parts of the world on low-term paying conditions. So we've had that battle constantly um, on shipping. Um, But this evolved, obviously, quite quickly. They announced very quickly uh, by video link that the, the workforce had to leave the ships within five minutes, effectively, get your stuff and get off the ships. And then we understand, and I understand from reports from my senior officers at, at office, that they were employing security people with balaclavas on and whatever to go on with handcuffs to, to terrorise and intimidate workers to get off the boats. So, you know, you think, well, actually, this is a, you know, you can have bad industrial relationships, but this is uh, reaching rock bottom, you know, um, to threaten. And to make, make this to the even threat.
1: worse, that they, they, they furloughed, 1,400 staff during the pandemic yeah. to a cost of 10 million pounds to the taxpayer. Um They've asked for 150 mi- uh, million pound bailout. Their parent company paid out like 250 million pounds to their shareholders. Now the pandemic's gone; they're just sacking all their all their staff, all their British staff. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, and that's
0: it's what it's they're doing. They're, they've already they must have been planning it for some time because they've got replacement workforce, as I understand it. Um, I'm not. I don't deal with shipping myself directly. I deal mostly with rail. But the, as I understand it, they've got a a, a low paid foreign workforce ready to come in. You know, um, based on the fact that they can do that.
1: And had you been involved in this, say this was the railway workers, you, your job now would be to knock on doors. You'd be going to meetings, trying to rattle the case. You'd be deep in negotiations. We've got to
0: stop this company getting away with this, you know, and uh, and get these workers back reinstated. And that's what the union will not rest really until that happens.
1: And judging by, you know, recent and past history uh, in terms of successes with stuff like this, um, the RMT is probably one of the best unions positioned um, to to lobby and campaign on behalf of workers for something like this.
0: We won't give in and we won't give up. Um, and I think the lessons, if p and want lessons from... The rail industry is where we ballot our members and because of the new legislation, we have to constantly ballot on a regular basis, really, to get mandates, but have achieved those mandates um, and some strikes have gone on for years over the role of the Guard, particularly within rail. We won't walk away from it, you know. We'll back our members and we'll continue to fight to get a result and to get them reinstated into their jobs.
1: Thank you so much, Brendan. It's been great talking to you. The only final thing to say, really, is uh, I know you're a big, you're a Ravers fan, aren't you? Been going to a few games. Yeah, both this come from
0: the north side of Bristol, so uh, safe Mead and oh, pass Ravers my oh Safe
1: me, boy. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah. And are they that- Ravers going to go up then this season? Do you think?
0: I think they can. I think uh, you know it's uh, they're you, you look at the they're on the ascendancy, aren't they? Really, in terms of their performances yeah. and their results, and they're looking strong. Got to say, to be fair to Barton he's probably silenced his critics now. So. I, th- I think they're in with a good show. It'd be great to see the Rovers grow up again, really. You never know, they might meet the city coming back
1: down. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Many thanks to Brendan Kelly from the RMT joining us this week, and we'll be back next week with a brand new guest and another fantastic topic. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Mags, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer. Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. And if you do want to become a member of The Cable and join Bristolian members all across the city, chipping in every month, then please go to the website to find out more.